This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I've been asked to talk to you about androgen deprivation therapy and sort of the fundamentals of this, which we'll, we'll term ADT for short. Now, prostate cancer cells, wherever they are found in the body, which I've shown here, are dependent on the male hormone testosterone to survive and to grow. The male hormone testosterone is produced by the testicles, which in turn are stimulated by a sequence of hormones secreted by the hypothalamus and pituitary glands, which sit at the base of the brain. And this hormone cascade is the basis of testosterone making prostate cancer grow. Now, in the 1940s and 50s, Dr. Charles Huggins, shown here, discovered that getting rid of testosterone by surgically removing the testicles, that's termed an orchiectomy, led to significant regression of the prostate cancer. And in fact, this important observation by Dr. Huggins earned him the Nobel Prize in Medicine. And in many ways, it's still what we do today, and I'd like to describe to you our approach. Now, Androgen deprivation therapy, quite simply, represents eliminating the testosterone, which is produced by the testicles. And you can do that the way Dr. Huggins did, but you can also do it by using a number of drugs that block the signal between the hypothalamus and pituitary. So the signal doesn't get through and the testicles just don't make testosterone. And I'm listing the drugs here that are approved for this approach. And this approach is equally effective as an orchiectomy, same side effects, just no surgery. Now, if you look at the four medicines that are out there for this process, there's not a huge difference, if any, in the efficacy of these agents. They really are very, very comparable. So that's not the, really the basis of selecting one versus the other. However, there are some important differences between the agents that people should be aware of. First of all is how the drug is given. Uh, and you can see here that it can be given as a shot. Uh, the luprolide or lupron is given as a shot in your buttocks. Uh, Gosserolin is a little pellet that gets inserted under the skin. Uh, Degorelix is a shot. And then Relagolix is a pill. There's also differences about how often you need to take it. Uh, if one is interested in not uh, dealing with this frequently, you can have a shot as infrequently as every six months. But you can see here that there is a difference. Um, the notable things are that Degorelix is available only in a one-month shot, and uh, Relegolix is a pill. Now, there's also some differences in terms of concurrent treatment that is necessary, and it turns out that the first two medicines on this list, if given alone, can cause a slight bump in testosterone initially. And so for that reason, a drug like Casadex, a pill, is given for a very short time period, usually two to four weeks, uh, to avoid that. Another difference is that there's been a modest impact on ischemic heart disease, on coronary artery disease, in men who have already had coronary artery disease or coronary artery disease event, where the two drugs at the bottom are slightly better than the two on the top. 
<clears throat> this difference has not been shown in men who don't have active coronary artery disease. And then lastly, there's some other issues. Uh, the degaralic shot is a little bit more painful. Uh, the Lupron shot is in the muscle, the Gosserolin is under the skin. And then it's important to note that the Regulix, which is a new medicine, which is oral, uh, has not been tested with other oral medications yet uh, or fully to understand any drug-drug interactions. So we have to be very thoughtful about that. Now, interestingly, if we measure the testosterone that is inside the prostate cancer cells after ADT of, by whatever drug you choose, there's still detectable amounts of testosterone that are left, up to 10 to 20% of normal, which can and do contribute to prostate cancer growth. The adrenal glands, which normally are involved in mineral, sugar, and blood pressure regulation, also produce a small amount of testosterone shown here. And so there's a couple ways of dealing with it. One way is to use an oral so-called anti-androgen that blocks the uptake of testosterone into the prostate cancer cells. And there's really, there's first generation flutamide, nalutamide, and bicalutamide, and then a second generation enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide. The names sound familiar because the drugs are very uh, similar. An alternative approach to an antiandrogen is to simply block the production of testosterone by the adrenal glands, which is undertaken by a drug called abiraterone. And as a group, you'll hear these agents that reduce the production of adrenal testosterone and don't allow this into the prostate cancer, you'll, you'll hear them referred to as androgen signaling inhibitors or ASIs. Some people call them androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. Um, but just in case those names are tossed around, that's what that refers to. So as we think about ADT throughout the next couple of days, there are some clear benefits. You know, it synergizes with radiation uh, to unambiguously improve outcomes in some populations, and we'll be hearing about them. For sure, they prolong the time to metastases in some men with climbing PSA. They reduce pain and improve quality of life in men with symptomatic disease. Certainly, it prolongs life in men with metastatic disease. And ASIs in particular, when they're added to ADT, prolongs life in men with both newly diagnosed metastatic disease in men with androgen deprivation therapy-resistant prostate cancer, and likely also in combination with radiation in selected patients. So those are the pros, but there's also some cons. And the cons are that there can be symptomatic side effects, fatigue, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, emotional ability, ups and downs, cognitive dysfunction, sleep disturbance, hot flashes, and some that are often silent, not always. Uh, for example, weight gain is not necessarily silent, but these are, tend to be metabolic side effects, which include thinning of the bones. We'll hear more about some of these. Uh, weight gain, muscle loss, the potential for glucose intolerance or prediabetes, hyperlipidemia, the so-called metabolic syndrome, and cardiovascular events. And of course, if people are placed on androgen deprivation therapy, and you stay on it long enough, resistance is universal. 
So we really have to balance the side effects and the benefits. So how do we reduce the side effects and avoid resistance? And we term that treatment de-intensification. And how do we maximize the benefits, which we call treatment intensification? So in terms of treatment de-intensification or reducing side effects, I just want to remind people the side effects that we see are due to the low testosterone level, not the medicine itself. So reducing the dose of the medicine simply leads to less testosterone suppression, and it could reduce the side effects, but it also reduces the efficacy of the therapy. So that's not a very effective way. Thus, the best way to reduce the side effects really is to shorten the duration of androgen deprivation therapy and, in fact, to avoid ASIs because they do intensify side effects. And there'll be more on this tomorrow when we discuss intermittent androgen deprivation therapy as a way of treatment de-intensification. In terms of maximizing benefits or treatment intensification, well, one could reduce the level of testosterone as low as possible by adding an ASI, and that has a significant benefit. Or you could add a totally different type of drug, for example, chemotherapy, and that type of treatment intensification also has significant benefit. And again, more on this tomorrow when we discuss intensified androgen deprivation therapy. So the bottom line here is that androgen deprivation is a balancing act. Uh, is it needed at all? What's the best timing of it? What's the duration of it? What's the intensity of it? All of these are really important decisions to be made. And as always, an important part of shared decision-making. It used to be that people were just told, you're going to be on this many months of hormone therapy, and this is what it will con consist of. But as you can see from this, there are options and there are um, a number of variables that should be taken into account as we do this calculus of the balance. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. There were a couple of questions that came up that I just want to very quickly address. Um, and the most important of which is, you know, with all these side effects that, that I talked about, what's the frequency of them? And I think it's important to remember that not every patient has every side effect by any means, number one. And number two, that it's a bell-shaped curve distribution, meaning that about 15% or so of patients will have very severe side effects. And about 15% of patients will have almost no side effects. And everyone else, the remaining 70%, are somewhere in between. And those side effects can range from minimally bothersome to significantly bothersome. So it's different for each patient. Uh, but the likelihood of each individual event occurring is, uh, is variable. Um, ADT will lead to sexual dysfunction, loss of libido in the vast majority of patients on one end of the spectrum. Hot flashes on the other, bothersome hot flashes, really only happen in 10, 15% of patients at most. And for most of these approaches, we have some type of intervention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.